Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm your host. I'm only as hip as my guest. And uh, we, we have a great show. We have a gentleman who's a, an amazing bassist, just a great musician. He's been around for a long time. He's from the Buffalo area, and that's where my brother's wife was from. And my guest is Billy Sheehan. How you doing, Billy? Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks. Thanks for your kind words. Well, you know, I, it's just you're you know you're from Buffalo, which uh, you must be loving living in California because you know I just moved back to New Jersey, and you know Buffalo gets colder than New Jersey. Yeah, it gets cold in the winter, uh, hot and muggy in the summer. The autumn is wonderful, but uh, yeah, LA has got some uh, weather can't be beat. So, so now. As a kid, were you? Did you start playing? What? How old were you when you started getting into music? Did you listen to music first, then gravitate into it, or how did this all start your career? I had older brother and sisters, so they were uh, always listening, and so I, I picked up on it from them. My mom was quite a fan too, but of a different generation. So uh, listening, then I, and then around the corner, uh, a band started with some friends of ours, uh, friends of brothers, uh, two brothers that lived around the corner. One played bass, one played keyboards. And the bass player, uh, was his name was Joe, and I, Joe was my, I looked up to him, and he was a cool guy, and I wanted to be like Joe, so that was my first inspiration. Now, you said you, uh, you a guy down the street played the bass. Yeah, Joe Hesse was a bass player, lived around the corner, had to, was in one of the most popular bands in Buffalo, he was a great bass player. Well, I wanted to be like Joe, and he was older than I was, so I, I go out, I sit in the driveway and listen at their basement window as I practice, and they wouldn't let me inside because I was a little kid, you know, just for the older kids. And then eventually I got in and picked the bass off and tried it, fell in love with the thing. And, and that was the beginning of it. And then, of course, uh, music was everything. And we'd listen to everything on the radio all the time. I used to just put my bass on and put the radio on and just play along song after song after song after song, trying to figure out you know, how to play things. And, of course, ended up getting in the band. And, and here we are today on the phone. I know it's crazy. So now you, you when you're in, you're, it's great. I mean, so you're playing and you're listening to music, and I think that's great because I've, I've learned so many people do just listen and learn instead of you know some people are very technical, but a lot of people just learn, and I think they develop their skill like that. So you were just listening to music. Now, how did you get about putting a band together? Like now you can post on you know Craigslist or or Facebook. Hey, I'm putting a band together. But how did you get in a band? And and a city like Buffalo is not a huge city. Well, actually, uh, at that time, uh, late 60s, early 70s, Buffalo was just booming. It was, you know, it was the auto industry, the steel industry. It was gigantic. The music scene in Buffalo was massive. We had, we had clubs all over the place. Within uh, an hour drive, easily way over 100 clubs to play. And they had bands. Some had it only Friday and Saturday. Other places were seven nights a week, live music three sets a night, and there were just dozens and dozens of clubs like that, so we had the opportunity to play constantly, and putting the band together, you're getting party questions, you know, it's just generally, you know, in school, you find out somebody else had a guitar, and you know, or somebody was a drummer, and word of mouth, and you kind of hook up like that, there was no social media, of course, but, you know, we, we got around, and back in the Stone Age, and we managed to figure out uh, who did what, and who was good on their instrument, eventually grouped together, and, uh, of course, you started as a copy band. That was the, that was the uh, what everybody did. That's what the Beatles did. That's what Van Halen did. Everybody was a copy band. And then you'd start, you'd learn a bunch of songs, go out and start playing in clubs to make money, and and move on from there. Now, how old were you when you started playing in clubs? 
I was uh, underage, so I, we we actually got fake ID. We actually went to the we went to the university and looked around for people that kind of looked like us, and then asked them if they would tell us their draft card, and they could just tell the draft board that they lost it and they get another one. There's a time you had to have a draft card, and that was your ID. So I found a guy that was kind of tall and skinny, kind of looked like me, and said, "Hey, I got ten bucks. If you give me your draft card, could you, you can get another one?" I goes, "Oh, sure." And so for ten bucks, I got my fake ID. So at it was seventeen around there. I was uh, made my way into the into the bars and started playing. Now, what was that experience? Did you love it? I mean, when you hit stage, did you just love it, or was it something that you were a little petrified at first? I mean, because you're in a bar, you're underage, you have that little in your back of your head. I mean, what was your experiences when you started out? Well, I didn't interact so much with the bar and the situation in the bar. I was on the stage and doing the thing with the guys I was with there. And we, uh, well, we played to some pretty uh, uh, indifferent audiences. You know, sometimes people would like us and wasn't any big, huge, giant crowd of people. But it was a slow process where you start to get up on stage and you start to figure things out and you band gets better and you get better at what you're doing and you learn to, you know, finally somebody puts a mic in front of you and you got to sing a harmony part and uh, you advance from there a little bit more and then a little bit, you, you, you go out in the audience and you start talking with people, find out what they're into. They like this record, this new record came out, so you go back and learn a couple songs off it. So next week you had songs to play for them. You know, we had to we had to start to when a record would come out, you wouldn't know what the single was, so we had to guess. Wow! So now, when did you start writing Pop your own song? Was going to be start what? When did you start writing your own material? Not for a long time, long, long time. Uh, I, I was a copy band for years and years and years and years before we ever, ever even thought about writing a song. And then at some point, uh, as the band got popular and things started popping. He said, "Well, gee, this this might be something. We we're gonna we might need a song here at some point. Anybody got anything?" And we, and we started putting the first few rudimentary songs together. And you'd have people up dancing all night, and you play your original, and they'd all sit down. And then you'd go back to the other songs, and they'd stand up again and start dancing. So the club owner would be looking at you like, okay, look, "Hold hold on on the originals there, pal. We want them dancing. If they're dancing, they're drinking, and I'm making money." So you had to start to fine tune your songs to make them entertaining and make them make sense and make them have hooks. And it was you were forced in a way by economic uh, uh, means to come up with good stuff. And it had to it had to work, and it had to be catchy and enjoyable, and you had to reach your audience. So it was a good way to really learn how to write because you 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 instantly test market it every time you played it, and you see people actually digging it, enjoying it, and asking for it. Then you then you knew you were onto something. So yeah. that kind of training ground was uh, priceless, and uh, I wish it was as prevalent now as it was back then because. It was just everybody that came from that generation can play a million songs, all kinds of styles. They can write like demons. Uh, they can, uh, you know, it's a, that, that whole generation of people that just kind of came naturally to when you grew up in a situation like that, where it you know, unfortunately isn't quite as prevalent today. But, uh, you know, there are other ways to get around it, of course. But uh, it was, I wouldn't trade my years uh, in that training ground. It was like getting a PhD and a uh, 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 entertainment, the entertainment business and music altogether. So now you're you're in this band now. Now when did Talus form? That was about 1971, 71, maybe 72. So uh, 
there was a band in Buffalo called the Tweeds, and they had a little local hit, and that kind of fell apart. So the guitarist and drummer for that, or the, the guitarist from that got together with me, and we started a band. And then we changed drummers and went through all very many permutations over the years, and eventually we became what was what, what was the more popular version of Talos, which then again continued to morph through the years as people came and went. But uh, basically it was three guys. Uh, it was the version one Talos, then there was a version two towels after that. Uh, so, but, um, but we played, we played, we, we had a range of about, uh, whatever we could get to within a 10 or 12 hour drive, we could, we could play. So we played New York City, uh, Connecticut, Boston, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Montreal, all over the place. Uh, with that band, just spreading out and just basically in clubs, and for the most part, copy bands or copy songs initially. But um, then we were squeezing in uh, originals at that time. Now you got you got a very huge popular, uh, po- uh, huge following. Um, what? Do, why do you think you guys broke to the next level? That's a good question. We had uh, we were opening up for the Van Halen tour in 1980. John Kalodner, the famous record company executive you see in the Aerosmith videos, uh, always wearing a dress for some strange reason, was on the side of the stage jumping up and down. The best live band in America. It was amazing. We're thinking, this is it. We're signed. This is great. Nothing ever happened. He did a showcase for Clive Davis in New York City. The band set up on stage at SIR. It's Clive Davis and three other suits sitting in chairs in front of us. Four guys. We did our, we did our set. Clive loved the band. This is great. This is awesome. Let's continue to talk. Blah, blah, blah. Nothing. Nothing ever happened. So uh, it's frustrating. And every time we, we, we thought we had it figured out, uh, some some new catastrophe would, would bedevil us and we'd uh, be back to square one again. But we just kept pushing, kept, kept going. Because uh, for me in 1983, I, I went over to Europe and did a tour with UFO. And they were a big band, and, you know, famous band. And, while I was in the band, I realized, tell us, we can, we can, we can, we can do this. We can, we can blow these guys away. They were kind of in the last legs of UFO. Michael Schenker had left, and it was they were kind of falling apart, drinking drugs. But I think these guys in this condition are over here doing these kind of tours. We we could we could do this in our sleep. It is no problem. So I was still even more encouraged at that point, saying, I know we can do this. It's got to happen. I, I know this can happen. So no offense to UFO, it was again they were that was a, a bad a bad time for them. But still, I just thought if they could do it, I'm sure we could. But unfortunately, uh, it just never was never in the cards. I don't know what happened. Uh, and uh, I I was such a fan, Van Halen fan. I always said, well, there's only one band I'd ever leave Talos for, and that would be uh, Van Halen. So summer of '85, David Lee Roth called, and I said, close enough. <laughs> how did how did he know how did did he know of you for when you opened for Van Halen or which is your name very big yeah. in the industry? So did he? So he called you. So you're sitting there and David Lee Roth calls you. And then, are you living in Buffalo still? Yeah, still living in Buffalo. Still uh, a meager little existence with my 1977 Ford Pinto. That's my car. But it wasn't Dave himself who called. It's you know his management team called my management team and said uh, uh, we'd like to. Uh, that Billy come out to California to be in Dave's movie. And I thought, what? <laughs> movie? What? Turns out that was the cover story because he didn't want anybody to know if he's going to quit that animal and start then. So, and then when I got out there, he said, of course, he's formed a secrecy on 
and everything. So when I got out there, I got out there to do a Talos and Ingbe tour. So there I am with Talos on the Ingbe tour, finishing it off, knowing that I'm a, when the tour ends, I quit and go to L.A. to start a band with David Lee Roth. And so, but I had to keep my mouth shut the whole time. It was a tough situation to be in. Now, that must have just been amazing, though, because all of a sudden you're, you know, you're joining David Lee. And David Lee, of course, you know, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, he had left Van Halen. Did that put any pressure on you? And then were you starting to go in the studio with him more? And it's more of, you know, where you were partners with the band before Talos because you guys knew each other and you were the starter. What was it like joining a new team as, you know, as not being, you know, David's the big attraction? Well, in a way, it was a release of pressure completely because now here, here I am. I, I did it. I got it. I, I, I left my little pento behind, true story, got to L.A. Uh, that night, the first, my first night in L.A., because Dave was the biggest rock star in the world at that time. Van Halen had just finished 1984, and they were huge. Uh, was out with Dave that night, and there were paparazzi uh, taking pictures of us. So I, thought, I went from driving my 77 pento <laughs> 18 hours ago to here I am standing with Dave later on, and the paparazzi were taking photos of us. So it was quite a rocket ride. To say the least, but Dave was great. He was cool. He, we had a great time together. The uh, the initial guitarist was originally going to be Steve Stevens. That didn't work out. So I knew Steve Vai. We were on the same label with Talis, was an independent label, uh, Relativity Records. And I told Dave, I know another Steve that uh, could be even even better. And uh, and sure enough, Steve Vai was the perfect guy for the band. And we, uh, but but there was no the the pressure was actually off because it was now. I didn't have to worry about uh, the kind of things I had to worry about when I was on my own. And in a way, it was really a, a welcome relief. Uh, Dave was in charge. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was the grandmaster. And there I was back in a month. You know, he's the general and I'm, I'm the artillery. So uh, I felt I felt good about it and uh, relaxed. And uh, we had a, just a spectacular time together, putting Eat and Smile together and then on tour. I was just, uh, it was really a, just a, adventure of a lifetime it must have been amazing going on tour from you know touring how you were and you know driving 10 hours and i'm sure you guys as you said you had a pinto and you drove whatever it must have been amazing just going in, in a more of a first class fashion it must have been just a, a great experience beyond great you know we had an incredible tour bus and uh personnel to take care of everything and uh the crew guys and roadies and security guys and it was just, everything was taken care of so it was just uh, mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing. I am forever grateful to Dave for including me in that adventure. And he is still my hero. And I still have great regard and respect for the man. And uh, it was uh, what, what, a, what a transition from my little uh, tiny little apartment in Buffalo. And I had we had a guy living in the basement, a guy living in the other bedroom, and then we turned the dining room into yet another bedroom. So we could split the two hundred dollar a month rent. <laughs> that's how that's how broke we were, you know. And, uh, and plus, I invested so much of my money into my gear and bases. I, you know, I, I barely had anything left. And I still got my check register from back then, from back in Buffalo. And say, you know, deposit fifty dollars, write a check for thirty five, make another deposit of forty dollars, write it. You know, it's just a little, little tiny microscopic amounts, you know, that I pay for parking. You know, here in LA, unbelievable. But it was a uh, it was great to have that kind of a transition because you really appreciate it when you get it. 
really, really appreciate it. Or sometimes the people are born into it or it happens automatically or it happens around them in some manner that they're not aware of. They, they don't, I don't know if they always appreciate it, but man, I was just, thank my lucky stars every minute. It was fantastic. Now, do you think when you joined him, learning the music was much easier because you had, as you said, that experience of learning every song when you were younger because you didn't know what a hit was going to be. Do you think that helped you a lot and has it helped you out, you know, in your career, you know, in your career, just picking up songs easily? Absolutely. Matter of fact, that first night we were together, we went out to a, at a little club, and there's a guitar sitting there, and uh, just a couple of people around. We were just having a few drinks, and I picked up the guitar, and we started playing Three Dog Night, and Beatles, and Beach Boys, and Grand Funk Railroad, and Young Rascal, and Dave was singing along, and Kenny Richards, the drummer from Autograph, showed up, and we started playing a beat, and we, we, I think that sealed the deal for my position in the band, looking back on it. Because it was just, we, I just knew a million songs, picked up the guitar, started singing a plan. We had a riot. Dave was there with the secretaries and the people that worked with him and some of the other personnel. We all had a blast. So that came from that. And then when it came down to going in the basement and coming up with songs and ideas, you know, it would just flow out of us. What, what about this thing? How about this? How about this chord change? Uh, he'd say to us, you know, well, we need a chorus here. What should we do? Okay, let's shift to this key and do this. Okay, cool. So, you know, after playing a, uh, hundreds of Beatles songs, <laughs> arguably some of the greatest writers ever. Uh, it really does start to sink in, and it was a big help. Now, were you developing a different bass style then? Were you playing something? Were you feel like you were growing every you know day as a bassist and learning more and just getting you know becoming a master because you have a great reputation as a bassist? Do you? I mean, how do you, how does one get a great reputation as a bassist? Is it just because you've been around, or you just are inventive? Well, there's a quiet way or the, or the, uh, uh, the more uh, uh, flamboyant way. <laughs> uh, quiet way is you just do exactly what's needed in one. Lock in with the drums and play a groove like nobody else and be kind of invisible. A lot of bass players, they really need to be invisible because they're a support instrument and we need to hear the singer and we need to hear the chord changes. Without the bass, of course, it'll be lost, but uh, not, not a lot of people notice the bass. So that's a great way. There's some great studio players and great guys that just do that perfectly. And it's an art in itself. And when you're a grandmaster at it, you probably have much more money than I do. Um, uh, certainly, uh, more, more fame, riches, and money. I don't, I, there's a long-ass list of people that, that, that have that. Uh, but for my way, I, I was on stage and a performer and did some, some flamboyance and some, uh, you know, some moves. But I, I still cherish the lock in the pocket playing but uh, for a live performance just to pop things up a little bit just to be a little more active on stage and going for it it's it's a it's a it's a little tougher uh, route uh, as far as getting uh, any kind of regard from your fellow musicians because it's looked at as you know just I, it's just the icing and not the cake whereas uh the cake is extremely important and when i first started out that, that's the way i played it was just straight up bass until i started it move around a little bit to get the audience interested. So um, I, I guess it all contributes to me, and uh, I, I'm lucky to have played on uh, some great records that had great songs, cool bass lines, not so much, but that gave me a little bit more of a um, uh, foundation as a foundation bass player. And uh, I, also from very early day, it was all about the drums, the locking of the drums. When you're locking in the drums, you can get away with a lot more. If you're really in time, you can do more 
and it won't seem busy. So, uh, but Dave was uh, cool, and then he let me have my head and do your thing, play the way you want. So everything I eat him a smile. I, I tempered a lot of things down on purpose because Dave Dave's singing here. <laughs> like, hold the whole note underneath him. <laughs> it's David Lee Roth. What are you doing? You know, it's a pull way back, and then we and then he also gave us time to go out and do our thing. You know, and then the live show he gave Steve and I this long ass uh, dueling guitar bass solo that was just uh, a riot. The audience loved it. It was his idea to do it that way too. We did individual solos initially, but now nah, we should mix it up a bit, make it more like a tractor pull. And you, 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 you push Steve aside to come out and play bass, and he pushes you aside, and then back and forth, back and forth. And it was totally Dave's idea, and uh, we did it, and it worked like a charm. People loved it. People that weren't musicians, that, that all the little really really bits that did not interest them at all. They were now watching us chase each other around the stage with our instruments, and it was exciting to them, entertaining to them. So it was, uh, again, uh, the, the, the foresight uh, of his uh, uh, point of view there really, uh, really helped everything. Now, after you left Dave, uh, you went, went to Mr. Big. When, when Mr. Big formed, do you think playing with Dave helped you develop that band? Because now it was, you know... There wasn't David. It was, I know, you and then Paul came along and uh, Eric. Do you think that helped you those years with David, learning how to, you know, really pretty much help run a show? Immensely. Immensely. It was, uh, it was uh, a doctorate degree uh, in, uh, in how to do it. But in Mr. Big, I, I wanted to um, just make sure that everybody in the band had an equal say. I really wanted to be a band. I didn't want to be me and those guys. Because I just, uh, as much as uh, Dave is a grandmaster at that, and I love having him be the boss, I just thought that I, I didn't necessarily want to be the boss. That's not my thing, you know. And not that he was the boss, boss, but he was, you know, he's the point of the sword. And he, you know, he, he, it was his ideas and his decision because he knows what he's talking about. And uh, I generally think I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not all that confident that I always do. And I like to have input from other people. And I don't want to be just the guy. You know, who, who, uh, whose shoulders everything falls on. And the one other advantage of getting the other guys in the band to uh, be equal is uh, the weight lands on their shoulders as well. So it's not only, you're not the only one burdened with everything that needs to be dealt with. So that was the idea with Mr. Big, was just get uh, four guys together and uh, let's, let's all contribute. We'll all write, we'll all work at this, we'll all split things evenly and, uh, and make it a, not so much a democracy, but an ideocracy, where the good idea wins out, it doesn't matter who it came from. And uh, from the beginning, it worked very well. And uh, right away, we knew we had something. Uh, it wasn't until the second album that we really popped, but uh, we were we were very confident from the very beginning that we had something that was uh, special. And uh, we got along very well together, and chemistry was good, so that was important, too. Now, what is that feeling when you go from, you know, you go from ground one, I mean, you're going from a new band, and, you know, you, you'd been with Talos and you guys, you know, people loved you, but you just never got that break. What is it like when you're, the feeling that you have when you're in a band like Mr. Big, you're starting from square one, and then all of a sudden you get to the level you are and you get to tour the world. As a, as a, as a musician and as a creator, that must be just a uh, an amazing feeling. It was overwhelming because you never know. I mean, this thing could have gone down the drain easily and I would just start start another band that goes down the drain and start another band and then who knows and then start giving bass lessons because I, I don't have a band so we again I was supremely grateful that we uh, managed to get a foothold and 
get a career start, get a major label deal, get an incredible manager who was instrumental in everything. Uh, and then, sure enough, bang, we had a hit record. Who'd have thunk it? Amazing. And from there, everyone's life changed. And uh, and I saw Dave at a party a few uh, like a few months after we, Mr. Big had a number one single, and he congratulated me on <laughs> the band and the success. And I thought, well, coming from him, that's the that's the that's the best thing, uh, the best acknowledgement I could imagine, because he was the guy who was my hero, you know, who, who had done it all, who had just uh, conquered the world. And I went off on my own, and he and he noticed it, and he and he was pleased that I that I did well. And it was just really a great moment. So, um, and 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 we uh, having a hit record certainly does change your life, and it took us all over the world. Now I know you just you're having the DVD come out and everything with the Winery Dogs. I know that was later in your career, but now how did the Winery Dogs? become get together because you guys are all very established it's I mean, you know people use the word super group and it is but how does how does something that happen like you know because you've worked i've seen with different people you know you work with tony mcalpine you've worked with all these different people you know mr big and you work with david and how is it like whose idea was it to form that band did you guys just know each other from running into each other i know you played on one of richie's albums or how did that happen yeah, again, like it was back in, in school, you know, everybody kind of knew everybody, and uh, we knew who was doing what, and Mike was out of Dream Theater and doing a whole bunch of stuff, but he wanted to have a, a band, and not just a bunch of projects, so he came to me and said, hey, what do you think, I want to do a band? I've worked with Mike before, we did a Who tribute, I recorded with him, seen him around a lot, so I knew him well. Uh, so I said, I said, yeah, we, we could do that, because Mr. Big, uh, in the situation we were in, we uh, we tour and do a record every two or three years, but in the, in, in the downtime, I I got to play. <laughs> From those early days, I need to be on stage a lot. It's just very important to me. I got to be up there. I, I live to play live, so so I thought it. Now I know what a tireless performer Mike is. So I don't get a man with him. I know we're going to play constantly, so let's do it. And then uh, and Richie, I knew he, he was briefly in Mr. Big for a while. Well, Paul left uh, the band for a short time, and uh, I knew him very well. Played with him solo bunch of times Richie and I with another drummer we opened up for the Stones in Japan a few years back so I knew Richie really well so uh, we all got together at Richie's house and uh, the hang was really cool and we said you know instead of doing a side project let's do a, let's do a band that we can live and you know, work and have you know do this for a while it's some little side project that fizzles away after one record so we uh, that was that was our idea initially just to just to have a, a, a spot for all of us to get in which, which would be better for all of us. Richie's amazing, but not enough people know who he is. And it drives me crazy because he's a superstar. Sings as good as anybody or better than most and uh, plays guitar like a, like a grandmaster and a great writer too. Why, why doesn't the whole world know about Richie Cosm? That's a crime. Right. So maybe if you got in a band with some guys that also had some sort of notoriety, would push him to the forefront. And sure enough, it did. I don't know how many comments we get up so man, I had no idea Richie could sing like that. I had no idea Richie could play like that. And yeah, well, now you know. And that was the point, you know, so that was pretty cool. Um, was it... So no, we... Uh, no, I was going to say, was it a natural when you guys would write together just because you all were... Co you didn't have anything to prove. I mean, you, you, I mean, you want you want the band to be popular, but you, as I said, you went in with a very casual attitude, but you all have chops. I mean, you're all very respected. Was it easier to write like that because you knew... There's a good chance between all your talent that the, the songs are going to hit. 
Yeah, well, you never know if the song is going to hit, but the, but the articulation of it is going to be done correctly, you know, which, which is important. So I, I knew, you know, because you never know. I've heard songs that I thought, this is a massive hit, and it goes nowhere. And I've heard nowhere songs that turned out to be giants. So it's hard to put your finger on that. But I, yeah, again, from the, from the early days, we... We've all been through a lot, so we didn't really have a lot to prove. We wanted to enjoy it and do uh, do the right thing as far as playing and songwriting goes. And the first day we got together, we went into the little studio of Richie's house, and we put together just about half of that first record in that first day, that skeleton of, of easily half of those songs that are on the first record, just by just jamming and, and you know uh, getting ideas. I'd play a bass line. I could do a drum beat. Richie would have a chord changes, a little thing. Who knows? And it all just came natural because we had all done it a zillion times. And we ended up with no producer. We did the, produce the first two records ourselves, which we probably will do to the, for the rest of the records also. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, so we it just kind of organically came together. And and then when we finished it, the first uh, Winer Dogs record reminded me very much of the Even Smile record and the Lean Into It record by Mr. Bateman. Because it was a record I actually ended up playing for my friends. So I had a lot of records. And usually I don't mention them much. And if they come up in conversation, whatever, you know, maybe I'll play a little thing here or there when my friends come over or something. I say, you guys got to hear this. Check it out. I'm playing the winery dogs later. People loved it. So I, I knew we were on to something. And uh, again, supremely grateful that the uh, fans uh, and people that listened to us uh, responded. Then came out the shows. Uh, in great numbers, so we we, we were off. We, we launched, and it was a it was glorious. Now the DVD is shot in uh, in South America. What do you think is the fascination with South America and and rock music? I've heard the fans are just adoring and they're wonderful. And what do you think? Why is that? I mean, fa- you know, in America, I think we have fans are all spread across, but I've heard in South America the crowds are just nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. They sing the guitar solos. I mean, in the, when the guitar player goes on the solo, the audience is singing the notes of the guitar solo that from the record. It's unbelievable. Uh, well, it's just kind of a demographic thing. There's a, there's a lot more younger people down there. America's demographic has aged a little bit. But still, we still have an amazing time in America. Great shows. Europe and the UK, mind-blowing. Southeast Asia, uh, we did a, our, our last Winter Dark show we did in Seoul, South Korea, was one of the one of the greatest nights I've ever had on stage. It was just the audience was out of their minds. So it was just, you know, everywhere we go, uh, we're very lucky to have uh, wonderful people that respond to us and and, and show up in the first place. But South America does have a little special uh, spice to it. And uh, we we could have done it anywhere, but it just turned out the logistics of Santiago, Chile, were uh, the best. Great venue, great room for the cameras, uh, easy in and out for the video crew and stuff like that. So we had uh, shows in Sao Paulo and uh, Buenos Aires and many other cities in South America, but it just, but, but we rolled the dice and Santiago came up as the best option. And uh, and the audience did not let us down. They, uh, they they pushed themselves. That's when a band gets on stage live and the audience responds, pushes the band up a notch, which makes the audience respond up a notch, which pushes the band up a notch. And you see that, you, you, you uh, see the leapfrogging, and so by the end of the night, it's just a, it's just a sweaty, amazing uh, uh, event that, uh, that uh, you'll never forget. 
Now, when you record it live, do you sit there? Do you pretty much know? I mean, you always do a set list, but if, if something's going and this crowd is just like insane, do you possibly divert off the the set list and then come back, or do you just because you know you're recording something, you stick to it? Well, for me, I, I, I've heard of some bands that do the bouncing around set lists, and they pick songs as they're in the middle of the show. Uh, but I'm, I'm close friends with a lot of technical guys and crew guys, sound men and light men, and, it, and it's really tough on them. They don't know what's coming next, and it's you know they got uh, a lot of adjustments to make per song, and it's, it's it becomes a nightmare. So we get a great set list and we stick to it, and that way you know and you can predict. I know what song is coming next, so I know exactly. I got to step on a little button here, or I got to move over to this little, you know, hit that knob on my amp to to change the sound or something like that. Just that predictability makes the show smooth and easy and run like a, like a fine-tuned uh, machine. So uh, we, we don't do any, we don't, you know, during the body of the song, we improvise all over the place. You know, we, we, we never know what's going to happen, but that's the body of the song. The song has a beginning and an end, and after the end of that song, the next one is starting, and it's the next one on the list. So the light man and the monitor man and the front house guy and the stage manager know exactly what's going to happen. No surprises for anyone, and especially the situation where you're videotaping where suddenly you got to stop everything or somebody somebody forgot to bring the acoustic guitar up because somebody called for some different song, and uh, it just turns into confusion and chaos. Basically, showbiz 101. Right. A lot of this stuff I learned from, from Dave. Well, you, you, know, you want to do a show, you better... It's like Van Halen... When we opened it from a nine, in, in 1980, it was like a military operation. I mean, this, that, that, that ship was a tight ship, and it ran on time. And it, it, the, at their worst night they had on the tour we did with them, Talos did with them in 1980, on their worst night, they were only spectacular. And they, they had dropped down to the level of spectacular. That's, that, other than that, it was, words couldn't describe how great they were. But they did it because they ran a tight ship and they knew how to do it. And I just think that's really important for, and Mike Portnoy is a grandmaster at that. He knows how to run a show. Get up there, set list. He knows how to put a set list together and make it so it's an enjoyable evening. And uh, I'm glad to let him uh, take over as that uh, uh, person doing that because it's, it's, it's an art to putting a set list together that you don't even think about. One song goes into another and you've got to know how to end. You've got to put it together almost like a movie. You, know, you start out with a thing, and then there's a car chase, and there's a love scene, and then there's a comedy break, and then there's a, another car chase, and a shoot 'em up, and then a grand finale. You know, and, and that's what oftentimes makes a movie great. You know, just pacing and editing, and what happens in what sequence. So the set list uh, for the self, for the um, Santiago uh, show was uh, Mike's set list put together with that in mind. That is paced. And it has a. Uh, there, there, there is a reason why one song would follow another, and uh, it's, it's uh, there is more to it than meets the eye and the ear. Now you put this great set out. It's got you know the show, and you can get it with uh, two discs and all these discs. Is that just because you want to give your fans something? And, and why did you decide to release that now? Is it just something you said it's time? You know, our fans because you, your fans probably inquire when you're gonna do another project together, another CD or whatever, because. You guys do all like you just recorded a CD with Mr. Big, Defying Gravity, and then you went you're on a tour with them, and then you take a break. Did you do this so that it can hold the fans over? It will give them something to wet their whistle, so they can be more anticipating for a new project from you guys. Well, the timing of it was such that it took this long to get that production together. I mean, it took a long time to do the video. 
uh, get the audio mix, do everything like that. So it was, uh, it's been being worked on full time since we recorded the show. So it's now finally done. And then when it, when it gets, when it's done, it's got to go into production and there's artwork and it's a long haul. So it just happens to be coming out now. If we could, if we could have put it out the next day after the show, we certainly would have. But unfortunately, we couldn't. So it's coming out now. So in a way, it's kind of fortuitous that it's coming out now because we're, uh, we're, uh, Richie's doing a great solo tour. Mike's got a million things going on. I got Mr. Big happening. So we're living some life and having some adventures. So when we get back together again, we'll have a whole new thing to talk about. And uh, when we do another record again, we'll, we'll, it'll be fresh again. So uh, I think this, the timing of this just was, uh, wasn't necessarily intended to, to be a placeholder. It may, it may act that way, but... Uh, and I know I, I get emails every day from people asking, you know, when's, when's more one your guys coming? You know, so this is a, an opportunity for us while we're all doing our other thing to uh, to, uh, to put out some material that is unique. Also, uh, some of the uh, extra songs included in there, some people may not have heard. So we're glad to be able to do it. Cool. Well, then, is it an organic thing when you guys will record again, or is it just going to be a scheduling thing? Uh, it's going to be organic because that's how it worked on the first record and the second record too. We, we, we got lucky two in a row that did really well. So, we, you know, we, we could have gotten caught in the album tour, album tour, album tour, album tour, uh, uh, merry-go-round, but then, then you burn out and there's nothing else. You got to, what do we write about now? I don't know. So we wrote about that on the last record. What are we going to do? So now we go off and live some life, have some adventures, have some tragedy, some comedy, some, uh, you know, some 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 wins, some losses, uh, and you, then when you get back together again, you got you got more to talk about. This, this life has been lived. That's why so many bands are first records, the best record they do because they've lived their lives up to that moment, and it's all documented on that record. Then the la- label says six months later, do it again. Well, we've only had six months of life since that one and this one, so there's not really much to talk about, you know. So it's a it's a it's kind of a funny thing. So now I'm glad we got a chance to go out. Richie does his thing, Mike does his thing, I do my thing, we get back together again, and then we'll have a, I can't wait for the stories going out. Cool, and now, now you're, you're still, you're going over to, you're going overseas with big, Mr. Big very soon, right? Yeah, we go to uh, South America, Mexico, then we do Southeast Asia, then we do Japan, then we do uh, Europe and the UK, then we uh, may do some more shows in the USA, and then we're really doing everything we can to try to get to Australia. Australia's tough. They just no promoter will take a date on us. And the Australians get all, all pissed off at us because I think we're for some reason refusing to play. I'll play anywhere. I'll play, I will literally play anywhere. I love to play. Why? Why wouldn't I want to go somewhere with thousands of my friends and get some free beer afterwards? Right. What, what, what's what's stopping me? You know, it's crazy. So some some fans get all uh, irate that we're not playing in their city. It's not us. Your city did not book us. Your country did not book us. We can't. We, no band chooses where they play. We got to go. We can only go where they book us. So, hopefully, we got our manager, you know, firing shots at Australia to try and get some uh, somebody to, to get us down there. So we, it's looking positive. It hasn't been confirmed yet. So hopefully, we get down there too. So it's gonna be a long, a long run, but a good run. Cool. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking some time today and talking to me. And uh, you're a great musician. I funny. I've had a bunch of the Mr. Big guys on, and I've had Richie on. So it's like I, I, I it seems like I almost know you guys. And uh, <laughs> so your 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 website is billysheehan.com. Yeah. Your your Twitter is at Billy on Bass. I know you you have a lot of Twitter followers. Yeah. 
and uh, the Facebook. Uh, I don't. Uh, the Facebook is the one I answer most. I don't really know how to answer the Twitter stuff. Once in a while, I go on there, and then my and my wife is trying to get me on Instagram too. So I guess eventually I'll get pulled into the future and get on that too. But we're we're, we're I'm doing my best to keep up with it all. But I, if anybody wants to write to me, uh, you can always write to me Billy at Billyshan dot com through my website or on Facebook or wherever else. And I, if I I I always read. Everything. I try to respond to everything, so, and I'm always glad to hear from people. Okay, well, I want to thank you for coming on, and people, go get the Winery Dogs. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, look, go to the website, buy this. It's a great, it's a great, it's got it all. It's got a DVD, it's got CD, you can listen. It's wonderful. So, people, go Excellent. Google Billy Shan, check him out, go to his website, uh, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper for Walk My Mind, and you guys have a great day.